Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace in the time of need. Uh, this morning, uh, there may be some here who have real needs. Is there someone who has a, a need this morning? Before we enter into the word of where I preach this morning from Romans, uh, is, there, is there someone who has a just a real, um, maybe not desperate, but a deep need uh, for the church to pray for you this morning? Or something in your life, sir? It doesn't have to be, but uh, we're singing this song about Christ being the cornerstone. Um, it's uh, so important for us to believe and to act upon um, this faith that we have that Christ loves us and that he offers grace to us. Um, anyone at all? If not, I'll just go ahead and pray and we'll go on with the message this morning. We do have a prayer group and the needs go on and on and on there. I know we we never have uh, enough time, it seems like, to pray for all the needs that we talk about. But uh, let's pray. Let's pray. This morning, I'm so thankful, Lord, that you've given us one another. Uh, you've given us yourself. We have this throne of grace. I'm glad it's not some other kind of throne. I'm glad it's a throne of grace. And we serve a Lord who has a mercy. It may be today, Lord, that we need your mercy. I know we need it every day, but there may be something besetting us, something within us, something in our lives where we need mercy today. We may need forgiveness. I want the church to know that they're forgiven as they present their needs in hurts, in errors, and even willful sins before you. Would you bring forgiveness and healing? And would you be in this word, Lord, as we turn to your word in Romans 7 and give us grace to understand what your servant, the Apostle Paul, was talking about? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Romans 7. Again, we're still in Romans 7. This is Romans 7 part 2 because there's always more to talk about and this is a very important passage in the history of the church uh, as I've said before. I'm going to read this for you. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and begin with verse 5. And I'll read through the chapter just to get just to get get our uh, our, our minds uh, <clears throat> set set on this. Okay, beginning with verse verse five, Romans seven. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released. From the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not in the new, so we serve in the new way of the spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, "You shall not covet." But sin, 
seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Uh, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. But I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Okay, so this morning... Uh, the Lord has clearly, my, clearly laid it upon my heart to be a little bit more pastoral uh, this Sunday than I was last Sunday, um, and I'm going to try. I'm going to try. It's tough when you hit Romans 7, but I'm going to try. Um, know this. Know that I love you as a church. I love you as my family. Jesus loves you, so I love you. Um, this indeed is a loving church. Last week was a difficult message. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. It's a difficult message. Certainly wasn't a feel-good message, although some of you told me that you enjoyed it uh, uh, quite a bit and that it, it, it really helped you to think through what Paul's uh, doing. Um, you know, I want to see Romans 7 as the description of the Christian life in my flesh. I would like to see it that way. It it's, it's, would be so easy to see it as the Christian life. In fact, how many of us can relate to this in our Christian life? Romans 7.15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I do, or but I do the very thing I hate. It seems as though that relates to our lives sometimes, at least many times, it, particularly if you struggle with an addiction. It seems as though that makes sense. That would be, the, that, you know, I deal with that stuff. It seems like that would be me. But, but uh, the question is whether Paul intended that to be the Christian life, whether he wanted us to understand that phrase, those words, those verses, such as Romans 7.15, in that light. That's the question. Uh, knowing the writer's intention is absolutely crucial in all good Bible study. Doing an inductive study in the text, you have to ask that question. What was the intent of the writer? 
Um, now, last week, at the end of the service, I made some mention. I can't remember what was the end of the sermon or right at the end of the service. I made some mention of willful sin and unwitting sin. It's important for us to make a distinction between those two because uh, we have to know whether Paul's talking about willful sin or unwitting sin in Romans 7. Uh, willful sin is just what I put up there on the screen. It is intentional. It's when we know a law of God or a rule of God or we know what God is telling us and we go ahead and trespass. We go ahead and go against what God is telling us. That would be willful sin. Unwitting sin, however, is sin that we commit that is not intentional. We're not aware of it. Now, it's, I think it's helpful uh, also as uh, Christians to understand that there has been language in the past, particularly through John Wesley. John Wesley talked about the fact that there is um, sin that remains in the person. Okay? He referred to the sin which remains, and he also referred to the being of sin. And these terms, if you ever read Wesley, are not exactly uh, unwitting sin, but they're related to the idea of unwitting sin. In uh, witting sin, this is how I've defined it. When witting sin is a sin of which we are not consciously aware. I wonder if you've ever committed an unwitting sin. I didn't know that I should have done this. I didn't know that I shouldn't do that. I wasn't aware of this. Um, therefore, as we grow in Christ, sometimes as we learn more and more about Jesus, we learn more and more about the church, we learn more and more about how our lives relate to Christ, we hear the voice of Christ. And there's areas in our lives that become open to, well, that can be, it's easier to disobey at times. As we learn more about how we are to live, there's this kind of like, oh, well, I know I shouldn't have done that. Or, or we become more, uh, we get more understanding of what it means to be a Christian and how we should live. And so sometimes unwitting sin can become willing sin because it rises to the level of, of, this, of this area where it's like, wow, I know God's telling me to do this, but I'm not going to do it. Or I know God's telling me not to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. So sometimes unwitting sin can become willful sin. Okay? So, so sin unwittingly. This, this is something that is, uh, that is talked about in the Bible. Uh, it's in a number of places. Uh, the Old Testament uh, brings it to us. Uh, I want to show you just some, some verses out of Leviticus. Uh, give you an idea. This has to do with sinning unintentionally. Just look at Leviticus 4. There's several of them in Leviticus, Leviticus 4, and I want to show those to you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally, not being aware, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. But there's more. If you were to spend some time in Leviticus today, I mean significant time, we would, this would really come alive for us. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, and then again, you're going to find that they have to present an offering. 
Okay. There's a couple more here I want to wanted to list for you, just so you know that this idea of unintentional sin is a biblical idea. Uh, 4:22 of Leviticus, when a leader sins, doing unintentionally, any one of the things that that uh, by the commandments of the Lord, his God, ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, again, there's going to be a sacrifice. And 4:27, if anyone, any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt, guess what? There's going to need to be some form of a sacrifice. So there's this place in the Old Testament for unwitting or intentional sin. And we as Christians need to be aware of that because as Christians, there are things that we do that we didn't know that were wrong or we didn't even, we weren't aware that we were doing, doing something that was uh, offensive to the Lord. And the Lord speaks to us, and then we see and we understand. Sometimes that word comes to us through the church. Sometimes leaders in the church kind of point it out and say, hey, you know what? I don't think that you're right here on this thing. I don't think that you, I don't think you should treat your spouse this way. Um, I think you need to pray about this one and let the Lord speak to you. So sometimes the Lord uses the church to do this. Now, in contrast... I hope that you see that Paul in Romans 7 is primarily concerned not about unintentional sin, but about intentional, willful sin. This is the issue here. I mean, this, is, this, is, this helps understand Romans 7. This distinction between an unintentional sin or unwitting sin and intentional, willful sin. I hope you see it in Romans 7. He's talking about intentional, willful sin. This person in Romans 7 is consciously aware of his actions. Okay, Romans seven fifteen. This this is uh, this is pretty clear that it's that it's willful. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. See, he knows what it is that he's supposed to do. Otherwise, he wouldn't be aware of this at all, right? I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He knows in his inside that he shouldn't be doing these things, but he is. The very thing I hate. Okay? And then we see this a little bit later in that passage. Uh, 7.24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, he wouldn't have that conversation. He wouldn't say those things if the sin was done unintentional because he wouldn't even know right? until someone pointed it out, until the Lord spoke to him. But here he recognizes again and again he keeps messing up. He wants to do the right thing, but he just can't seem to do the right thing. He doesn't want to do the wrong thing, but he keeps doing the wrong thing, and he's aware of it, and he intentionally does it again and again and again. And so there's a pattern of behavior here. Uh, this is Romans 7, willful sin. Okay, uh, We call this the flesh. We call this flesh. Paul calls it the flesh. I want to talk a little bit about flesh uh, in, in a few minutes. Um, it's really important that we spend some time on the word flesh because that's what Romans 7 is about, you see. Whereas Romans 8 is about the spirit. All right. now, but I want to give you some pastoral words. God loves you wherever you are in this journey. I'm going to say that. God loves you and he gives grace wherever you are on this journey. Um, you, may, um, you may have some addictions. 
you may have a difficult time getting through them and getting over them, getting past them. Our Lord is big enough to break those addictions. Okay? Um, you may be someone who resists God from your heart. There may be a whole number of things that you know that God has told you not to do, and yet you do them anyway. Uh, you may not know Jesus Christ, but you would like to know Jesus Christ, but you have this area of, well, sin, where you just keep doing these things that you know you shouldn't do, and I'm just going to tell you right now that God can change your heart. He can do that for you. You have to start trusting him, but he can do that for you. You may be a fully devoted Christian. God has gotten a hold of you. You've been crucified with Christ. But every now and then, you get discouraged because you look at yourself and go, wow, I have such a long way to go to be fully like him. Um, I have a long way to go in terms of what good, good church word here in my sanctification, right? And I want, I want you to cheer up. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is at work, you see. So when I talk about Romans 7, I don't want you to think that, that uh, I'm talking about necessarily completely static categories. Where human beings are very complex. Very complex. But, but, but God is at work. And wherever you are on this journey, God wants to reach you, you see. And he wants to deal with your flesh. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. minute. Um, and I just, just want you to know, God will not give up on you. Well, today is St. Patrick's Day. Um, look, at the, I'm so tempted right now to have a certain family stand up, but I won't do it. I won't do it, okay? But I will say that, you know, green makes me happy today, right? Do, are you familiar with St. Patrick, who, who he was? You know, this is an incredible person in the history. I'm not going to spend really much time here. We're not going to spend any time on this. But St. Patrick was an amazing person that brought the gospel, the good news, uh, from the continent in Europe, right, to Ireland. He had, been, he had been held in slavery in Ireland as a young man, really as a boy and, into, and into, as a young man, and he eventually escaped. And he grew in Christ and brought the gospel back to Ireland to those people who had enslaved him. It's an incredible story. It's like one of the great stories within the history of the church. And Ireland was like this place during the, life, during the, the centuries immediately following St. Patrick. Ireland was this place that was alive to Jesus, full of people who loved Jesus. The church had problems on Europe, I mean on the, on the, on the continent. But, but God was like, you know what, I got these people over here in Ireland, and I really, I love them in a way that they're going to come alive in me, and they did. And in so many ways, God used St. Patrick to keep the church living and alive. I mean, it's a great story, absolutely great story. So um, if you have the name of Pat, be thankful, be blessed, be blessed, because, you know, there you are. I mean, it's what God did through St. Patrick. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with St. Patrick's breastplate. It's a great, uh, great prayer. I'm just gonna, At the end of that prayer is this, and I want you to just personalize this. Think about this for a moment today. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. 
Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down. Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. I mean, this kind of prayer and living in Jesus changes lives. May God today empower you to change the world we live in in the way that he empowered St. Patrick to change Ireland. Um, Okay, so I wanted to say that today because this is a unique day. About once every seven years, we, uh, you know, St. Patrick's Day falls on a Sunday, (laughs) right? In fact, I actually came really close to just preaching a whole sermon on St. Patrick, you know, about what he did in Ireland and how that's affected the church. But I just encourage you to, uh, to, to uh, read about that history, and it's just an incredible thing. Oh, look what I had. I didn't even put it up there. I put a bunch of, bunch of those. Uh, anyway, I had that picture for that, for that talk there, but that's all right. Let's talk about flesh for a minute to help us understand Romans 7. Let's talk about flesh. Um, the Hebrew word is basar. Uh, in the Old Testament, the word basar or flesh in the English is used 270 times. Okay. It's used in terms of the physical body. Uh, many of us relate to this, understand this. We've read this. Genesis 2, then the man said, this is at last. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me. And so you have this presentation of the word flesh in the Old Testament, just the physical body, you know, just God's gift to us to live. The body, actually, as far as the Bible is concerned, is not a bad thing, right? It's not a bad thing, okay? It's actually a gift of God, right? Um, Flesh also in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's used used this way, and we see this in Isaiah 40. It refers to the temporal nature of humanity. In other words, we know that our bodies are going away, right? We only have so much time. So look at what Isaiah says. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Here it is. All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So there's this contrast between flesh and the word of God, right? So the body is not a bad thing, but it's temporal. It's temporary, all right? Uh, how else is it used? Okay, flesh in the Old Testament. It's used in a positive... Oh, I wanted to, before I did that, I wanted to go back here. Okay. Oh, wrong, 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 wrong again. Wrong, wrong, wrong. With, oh, the slides have gone down up, up here. Okay, so you just... Mm-hmm. I'm over here. Be patient with me. Um, where did my other slide go? Oh, well. Oh, well, that's fine. I thought I had one on weakness. I thought that got messed up. I think it got messed up. It's okay. It's, it's used in terms of weakness. It's also used in a positive way. Well, there it is. How did that happen? How did we get that slide? Did I just mess up? I'm, I'm still learning how to use this, right? I might be using that excuse for the next 15 years, but nevertheless, you know, I mean, I've got to make mistakes, right? <clears throat> <clears throat> it is an unintentional sin. How about that? 
<clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay, all right. So it's using terms of weakness. Look at this. Uh, that's New Testament, though. I thought I had a weakness one on the Old Testament. We got to go. We got to go back to the Old Testament. Okay, let's go back here. It's used also in a pause. How did this happen? What is going on here? Maybe I skipped it before. I skipped it before. I did. Look at the way. Look at how it's losing. Okay, it's used in terms of, of time. Uh, that we have not a lot of time in our bodies. It's only used this way in terms of weakness. The Egyptian, uh, Isaiah 31, 3. The Egyptians are man and not God. See, God's powerful, human beings are not. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. Okay, so, so you can see the point here is that, is that you know, uh, it's not that flesh is bad in this, in this respect, but it doesn't have power the way God has power. The power the way the spirit has power. That's the idea. So it's used in a variety of ways. Now let's see if I can get to, there we go, this positive way. In Ezekiel 36, I hope you're familiar with this passage. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. One of the great promises, right? And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of, give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the idea here, of course, is that God has given this great promise to the people of Israel saying, look, you know, you got a bunch of stony hearts. They're hard. My word can't penetrate. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Well, she's going to do that in the New Testament, right? The Spirit of God coming, Acts 2. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh so that you, so that you can receive the word of God and can begin to change. You see, this is this great, great promise. So flesh is not necessarily bad, Right? It's, it's in some ways very good, but it has limitations, significant limitations. Okay, now to the New Testament. Look at how it's used. I'll give you a few ways it's used. Okay, the word is sarcos in the New Testament. And it's used as having limited capacity and even in opposition to God. So now we see that flesh is not just of the body, but it's actually really can be used in a negative way. Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh. He's talking to these Pharisees. I judge no one. Okay? Um, in Romans, Paul uses flesh, the word flesh, 23 times. That's pretty significant. That's going to be an important word. Do you know that 17 of those 23 times are in chapters 7 and 8? In chapter 7 and 8, the focus, there's, it's going to be a big focus. And actually, in chapter 8, when you look like two th- verses 2 through 9, that's a big deal where he's going to use flesh over and over again in order to describe chapter 7, tell, to make it clear what he's been talking about. But he uses it 17 and 23 times in, uh, in, in um, chapters 7 and 8. Okay. Uh, here we see Paul using it this way in Romans 7.25. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh... I serve the law of sin. The resistance to the things of God. So Paul has really, really changed uh, this word. He's using it in a very specific way in order to help us understand precisely what Romans 7 is about. Okay? Um, Look at this. Look what he says in Romans. I'll bleed into uh, Romans 8 a little bit to help us. He uses it multiple times, like I said, in Romans 8, 2 through, uh, through 9. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
So, so what's happened here is that he's really helping us understand that flesh is, you know, this, he wants us to guess, get this. The flesh is really against God, you see. It's, it's resistant to God, resistant to his ways, and even has kind of an anger toward God because the flesh wants to do its own thing, you see. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Uh, that's quite a statement, okay? Now, so what's the point? Why have I been talking about flesh? Well, um, the answer is clarity. I wanted to bring some clarity to Romans 7. Um, it's a difficult passage. Um, and I think if we are clear in our thinking, we're going to see the following. Okay, we're going to see this. First, we will consider, it's necessary to consider this as we look at Romans 7. So crucial. We will or we should consider the structure of the passage, the structure of Romans 7 and Romans 8, points to the fact that Paul is talking about a person who is utterly incapable of being in Christ. Now, that's where the great issue is, right? That's where the great controversy is. Because <clears throat> in the history of the church, many have said, beginning with Augustine in the early 5th century, that hey, Romans 7 is about the Christian life who's just struggling, 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 struggling with sin. What I'm telling you is against Augustine. Okay, uh, The structure of the passage, and by the way, Augustine didn't do Greek very well. He admits it. He doesn't really do Greek. He's a Latin scholar. Okay? Which is not, and I love Augustine. In fact, if, you, if you've never read the Confessions, go out and read them. Because they're really good. Okay? But nevertheless, the structure of the passage points to the fact that Paul is talking about a person utterly incapable of being with Christ. So we get this, we get this structure. Okay? I don't know if you can read that exactly. I hope you can. Okay? This is the structure of Romans 7 and 8. This is one of the structures. Other things, for those of you who have been involved with me in inductive study, you, you, you'll see what I'm talking about here. If you haven't, I'll do my best to explain it. Okay, so what we have here from verses five, verses 5 and 6, bleeding into 7, 7 through 25 and 8, 1 through 39, is particularization with contrast. What in the world is particularization? Okay, so um, I have a dog. And, I, and let's just say, I do, actually, I have two dogs, but I'll just, just, just set on one. I have, I have a dog. He's a very worthy animal. It's great value. Sometimes I tell my wife, I say, you know what? When, when, when my dog dies, I'm going to make a statue of him. I'm going to put it up on a mantle, you know, because he's just worthy, you see? Just a wonderful creature, right? Uh, he goes to the bathroom outside, unlike the other dog. Okay, he comes and, and he comes and he, well, he licks me, he honors me, he does what I tell him to do once in a blue moon. Anyway, so let's say, so I got this dog, okay? So the dog, I've already told you his name. Okay, so this is, I have a dog. Well, the dog has a name, name of Levi. So that's one thing, that's one of the details I'm telling you. His name's Levi. He is a teramisu, which means that he's half fox wire terrier and half, um, Chitsu, that's right. Thank you so much. Chitsu, okay? He's white with a little bit of patchy brown color. He has a tail and he wags it. He has two eyes. He has a nose. He has two ears. He has a snout. Okay, now, all those things that I've told you, his name, 
the breed he is, that he has a tail, snout, whatever. I'm giving you the details regarding the fact that I have a dog. That's what particularization is. Particularization is giving the details of something you've already stated. Okay? So look at this verse here, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, <clears throat> our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And I talked to you, I think I told you this last week, that that, is, uh, that while we were living is what's known in the, is, as being in the imperfect tense. It's past tense in the Greek, which means it's an active past tense. It's just he, there was an active, in the past sometimes, actively living in the flesh. You see, something that happened before. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were working on members of bear fruit for death. Now, he's going to give the details of what it means to live in the flesh in verses 7 through 25 of Romans 7. That's what he's doing. That's how he's structuring the passage. Verse 6, notice that. But now, in the present, but now, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That is particularized. The details of that is given he shows us what that's like and what that's about in chapter 8. You see? So he particularizes both statements. It's really critical statements for setting up chapter 7 and chapter 8. Right? But notice that there's contrast, tremendous contrast, because to live in the flesh is the very opposite of living in the Spirit. You see what he's doing there? I hope you see what he's doing. Because that's how the passage is structured. All right? And if you were with me in an inductive class, we could take questions and so forth. That's just the way it is. Okay. Now, um, <clears throat> open up your Bibles this time. Why don't you open up your Bibles to Romans 8. And I'm going to get a drink of water. Look at what Roman 8, 8 verse 1 says. <clears throat> so sorry about my clearing my throat. Romans 8 1. There is therefore no con now, therefore now, now, therefore now, in the present, no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Guess where we were before we were in Christ Jesus? Verse 5. We were, see that in orange up there? We were in the flesh. You see? Um, you are not the same person if you've given your life to Jesus Christ that you were before. You were in the flesh. Now you are in in Christ. That little word in is crucial. You see, you're in Christ. Now, for Paul, that's a big deal because we are either in Christ, think of spheres, we're in the sphere of Jesus Christ, or we're outside of the sphere of Jesus Christ. For those of you who have been taking Revelation, think fallen Babylon, right? And then think the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, right? We're either in the New Jerusalem or we're in fallen Babylon, and i got to tell you, in Revelation, there's nowhere in between. And for Paul, there is nowhere in between. 
in, these, in, the, in this passage, Romans 7 and 8. You're either in Christ and all of his blessings and benefits, or you're in the flesh and all of its problems. Okay? I know the church has often wanted to take a middle way, like Augustine wanted to take a middle way. Luther wanted to take a middle way. John Wesley did not. We'll get into that in a minute. Wesley saw this, and I hope that you see it. Okay? Um, this is, this is, in my opinion, this is absolutely crucial. Okay? okay, so let's go to Wesley then. Let's go to Wesley. Because it could be that you think, well, the pastor's just off in left field here. Okay? I'm trying to bring clarity. One of the ways we would get clarity is by looking at the structure of the passage. I shared some Greek with you last week. This time, I'm looking at the structure of the passage. And then now I want you to see what Wesley says. Now, if you don't know John Wesley, John Wesley was the founder of Methodism. And the Nazarene church has its history embedded in Methodism. We're not the same. We're not the Methodist church, particularly not the Methodist church that is alive today, but we have our roots in John's Wesley theology. All right? And, and I'm not going to take too much time to talk about Nazarene history here, but just so that you know that it's, our roots are in Wesley's theology. Look what John Wesley says in his notes about verse 5. He quotes this. When ye were in the flesh. That was his version. <clears throat> when you're in the flesh. He says that it's carnally minded in a state of nature before, that's, let's keep, before we believed in Christ. Now, Wesley has, ser- has a sermon called The Natural Man. And he talks about the natural man in terms of the person who is not spiritual. Right? And he has what he means by a state of nature. The natural man, one who is not a Christian. Okay, let's go to the next little thing, particularly in Numbers uh, 7, his comments on verse 7. What shall we say then? Now he comments on that. This is what he says in verse 7. This is a kind of digression. In other words, Paul's kind of going a different direction. To the beginning of the next chapter, wherein the apostle, in order to show in the most lively manner the weakness and inefficacy of the law, changes the person and speaks as of himself concerning the misery of one under the law. This St. Paul frequently does when he is not speaking of his own person, but only assuming another character. Remember the sermon I gave a couple, was it a couple weeks ago? I told you that, yeah, it was two weeks ago. I preached on 7 through 12, verses 7 through 12 of chapter 7. What did I say? I said that this is Adam. Right? Remember that? I said this is Adam. I'm only agreeing with John Wesley. He's saying that Paul's not speaking of himself, but speaking of another person here. He specifically say it was Adam, but the reality is, is that it's most likely Adam. And he goes on. Look at this. Okay? What is this? The character here assumed is that of a man. Think Adam. Right? That was my addition, right? First, ignore the law then under it, and sincerely, but ineffectually, striving to serve God. To have spoken this of himself, or any true believer, would have been foreign to the whole scope of his discourse. Nay, utterly contrary thereto, as well as to what is expressly asserted. Chapter 8, of uh, uh, verse 2 of Romans, where he says this, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So what I'm trying to tell you is that John Wesley, you may not agree with Wesley, and that's fine. 
I don't agree with everything he said, but he's right on here. John Wesley is saying that this is not the Christian life. This is the life of a person who is not in Christ. And of course, that's what Paul says. So I spent a lot of time on this because I believe it's absolutely crucial that we understand Romans 7. And if you disagree with me, that's okay. You know, maybe that is the Christian man or woman. But you're not going to hear that from me. Um, the life in the Spirit is too important. It's too crucial for us. It's not a life in the flesh. Um, well, I could go on and on and on about that. Uh, but let me say this. This whole storyline in Romans 7, it ends this way. And we need grace. The person who doesn't know Jesus Christ needs grace. Actually, the truth is, I need grace. You need grace. We all need grace. We all stand in grace. But notice what's happening in this passage, this story. This person cannot do what he wants to do and does what he does not want to do. This is a person who's beginning to realize that he is constantly breaking the law of God, that he knows, constantly doing it, constantly trespassing against God. And what does he do? He calls out for help. This is what he's saying. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, this is a conversion story. It's a conversion story, right? Paul's trying to show us, hey, look, this is not the life we're supposed to be living because this is the non-Christian life. It's a life in the flesh. And so he tells us, look, um, there's deliverance in Jesus Christ. And I, and I don't know. I mean, there could be someone here who says, look, the reality is, is that I'm always fighting with God. I'm struggling with God again and again and again. You may even come to Christ when you were young, when you were little, but the reality is that you just keep fighting with God. Let me tell you, God gives grace. Wherever you are on this journey, remember I said there's, human beings are complex, right? And we come to God in different ways, and we grow in Christ in different ways. We live a life of sanctification in different ways. I mean, God's always working to bring us toward Jesus to be more and more like him. Okay. And God wants that in all of our lives. Um, there's grace for you. And there's grace for me. Christ in you. Christ above you. Christ below you. I don't have all of them. I don't have the thing memorized. Christ on my right. Christ on my left, Christ around me, Christ in me. It's all about Jesus, friends. It's all about the Lord.